0: Welcome to the Art of the Christian Ninja's Sermon Podcast, dedicated to helping you find the tools and inspiration you need to pursue a deeper, consistent, and more meaningful relationship with God. Pastor Al Deshino speaks at Beckwith Baptist Church in Carleton Place, Ontario, Canada. And if you have any questions or comments about what you hear today, want to learn more, or just see what Pastor Al is up to, you can find him on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or on the webpage Art of the christian Ninja.com. And now here is Pastor Al with this week's message.
1: It's been sort of my tradition to take time on Palm Sunday to tell the story of the history of the world, the, the story of salvation, sort of from beginning to end, because I think it's important, maybe especially during times like this, where we remember that the, that the moment that we're living in, this, this time, the events we're looking at, are not isolated. They're part of a larger story. We're part of, even though we we get so focused on ourselves, we're part of a a meta-narrative. There's something bigger going on, and it's been going on for a very long time. And so I just want to remind us of the big story. So our story begins in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now you'll notice how I said, our story it's not the beginning of of the whole story. It's just our part of the story. Uh, this external, this 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 world we see, was not brought forth, and then time began. It God is eternal. God created it before there was anything else. There was God, and He manifested the heavens and the earth. So. The story begins not with us, but with God in eternity, and then God begins our part. God creates the heavens and the earth, the universe, the stars, the planets, our world, everything on it, and he does it in steps. As we read the creation story, we, we see that God is imaginative, and he's powerful, and he's orderly, and he's really enjoying his work. We don't know everything about the beginning of time, but we do know one thing. We certainly know that it did not come together by random chance. Everything was created. Over and over and over, God creates. And then he looks at what he's done, and he says, that is good. He likes what he sees. He makes the skies and the oceans and the birds and the trees and the sun and the moon. He makes all of it, and God does it through this amazing process, forming all of creation from nothingness, nothinglessness into everything. And then he calls it good. And then after everything is created, he begins his greatest work. God literally saves the best for last. He created humanity. All the rest of creation was a good thing, but this would be the best thing. God formed man out of the dirt of the ground like a potter, lovingly molding a clay sculpture in his own image, and then he breathed life into him. Life unlike any other creature had. Physical life, but also spiritual life. And then he formed the woman from a part of the man, making them complementary equals. And he bestowed upon these beings something unique in the world. He bestowed upon them a living spirit that reflected his own, and humanity was designed to create, to, to bear God's image, to carry his divinity within us we're the best thing he ever made, and he loves us very much. And he takes his two favorite creations named Adam and Eve, and he puts them in this wonderful garden, and he gives them the task of spreading this garden, spreading his glory, spreading creation to make more images in the form of children, and take that little garden and bring it to the rest of the whole world, a whole planet full of image bearers in perfect relationship with their creator in the perfect environment, endless food, total comfort, no shame, no danger, no anger, meaningful work, perfect love. God created something where greed wasn't a problem, sickness wasn't a problem, relationships weren't a problem. Sex wasn't a problem. And best of all, these humans had this glorious privilege of walking and talking with God face to face. It was the best place ever, and it would only get better. But it didn't. Adam and Eve, with some help from the devil himself, decided that God's plan wasn't good enough. You see, God had placed them where everything would be perfect. They would have everything they could ever need, but it had one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in a world of perfect and delicious options, there was only one tree from which they weren't allowed to eat. Can you imagine a world where there's only one bad choice? Everything else in the whole planet is good and healthy and satisfying. There's only one bad option. Now, a lot of people have asked, why why would God put that tree there in the first place? And the answer is simply this. Without it, there would have been no choice. In order for creation to have free will, in order for creation, the people, everyone, to have the ability to love, there had to be options. To make love real, there must be a way to choose not to love. To make obedience real, there has to be a way to choose not to obey. To make trust real, there has to be a way to show whether or not one believes what God was saying. If there was to be a real relationship between creator and creation, rejection had to be an option. Adam and Eve made the other choice. When given the choice to love and trust and obey, they chose not to. They chose to believe God was holding out on them. They chose to take something they were not allowed to have and which they had been warned would harm them. That choice was called sin, and it changed all of creation. That moment that Adam and Eve decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Everything changed. Everything changed. At that moment, something new entered the world, something called sin. God had warned them that everything would change, but they did it anyway. He warned them that the consequence would come, and the consequence would be death coming through sin, and they did it anyway. They didn't want only the knowledge of good. They also wanted the knowledge of evil. They knew that once they ate it, they would have a special knowledge they did not have before. Something God didn't want them to know, but something that would hurt them. And they ate anyway. Before that moment, the only thing they knew was goodness and life. But after they fell, their decision meant they knew good, but they also knew evil and death. And since God is perfect and holy and good, he can't be in relationship with evil. He has no part with evil or with evildoers. And so in his love, he can't let the infection spread or the infection go untreated. In his justice, he couldn't let sin go unpunished. So now, because of their choice, he could no longer communicate face-to-face with his beloved people because the the white-hot furnace of his holiness would destroy them. They were now changed, all because of their decision to sin. Now, as stewards of the world, and since the world was created for them, the sin not only affected them, but it affected the whole world. They were the pinnacle of creation, the top, and they were their decision tainted or marred or affected everything else. It's like their, their sin bled inky blackness down from them onto everything else in the universe. Within moments of falling to temptation, we read of, Shame and anger and distrust and fear and blame and then weeds and toil and pain and frustration and heartache and just like God had promised, death. Physical death, spiritual death. Because you see, death wasn't something God had designed into the world. Every choice has a consequence. And the consequence of disobeying the law is judgment. All humanity believes this. We all believe in a a sense of justice. It's, It's a carryover from being made in God's image. Any good parent, any good society, a good God punishes wrong. And the punishment for sin is death. That's all bad news, right? But even though there was bad news, and a lot of it within the first three chapters of the Bible there was a glimmer of hope, the promise of salvation to come. Look it up. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You see, in the middle of passing judgment, God shares the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he promises Eve that one day, someone born of woman will finally do something to reverse all the mess. That one day, someone would do battle with death, do battle with Satan. And that, even though it would look bleak for a while and the consequences were dire, God's gospel said there would still be hope. Now, even though humanity had fallen and it was now outside the Garden of Eden, it didn't stop them from going forth and multiplying. Adam and Eve were having children, and their children were having children, and the world was being populated. Not only were people multiplying, but their sin was multiplying too. Things were actually getting worse. The Bible says that by the time of Noah, things were really grim. It says that in Genesis 6-5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You see, eight generations had gone by and a lot of people were now on the earth and they were inventing new ways to be evil and to corrupt one another and to hurt one another. And they had become so corrupt, it was at their very core. They had disregarded and they were completely removing from their life any connection to the Creator and hurting their fellow man. The Bible says that God was grieved. He had such a love for his people, but they had so completely turned their backs on him and were doing such harm to each other that he was sorry he had ever made them in the first place. And so God as creator, he has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation, so he sends a flood to wipe them out, to wash away the wickedness, which had got completely out of control. But even then, we see God's grace in the middle of judgment, the good news, the gospel. There was a man named Noah, who was Adam's great-great-great times-eight grandson. God saved Noah and his family because they were the only family left who was actually listening to him. Now, was Noah perfect? No. Did he earn salvation by being a good person? No. But he loved God and he lived like God mattered. It was not that Noah was worthy to be saved because he was so perfect. He was a sinner. It was that Noah was the only one willing to listen to the message of salvation. After the flood, God started over using Noah and his family to repopulate the world, and because that's what God does. He takes the impossible situation, and he adds justice, and creativity, and grace, and love, and hope. And yes, humanity would fall again, and Noah didn't make it very far out of the ark before he was... Sinning again, and his whole family was sinning again. But even that pointed to Jesus. You ever wondered why God doesn't just wipe out all the bad people and just leave all of us good people? It's because everyone is bad people. None of us are free from the effects of sin. Even the most righteous man on earth was not good enough to stay righteous for very long. The The problem of sin can't just be washed away by zapping all the bad people because we're all bad people. It goes deeper. Humanity has an internal problem, a depravity that goes to our very core, and that's what needs to be dealt with. You see, sin isn't about good people who occasionally do bad things. That's not the gospel. That's not what church is about. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not what faith is about. It's not just good people who occasionally do bad things and need to learn how to be a little better. The gospel describes that there's something broken inside of us, something that will always pull us away from God, a, a curse that needs to be lifted before we'll even want to get right with God again. And so God puts his rainbow in the sky and he says he will never flood humanity. He will never do that again because he's about to put his full plan into action. Right around the death of Noah, there was a man named Abram. He was born. God's gospel plan continues through him as God, in this amazing act of grace, chooses to show love to this obscure pagan man who neither knew him nor followed him. Abram wasn't anyone special. He was just a guy that God decided to love, decided to give an invitation to. But what made Abram special was the fact that, like Noah, he was willing to listen and willing to obey. So God says, Abram, leave your country and your people and go to a different land. And he does. Then God makes a promise to Abram, who is at the time a senior citizen, married to a barren wife, having no children, that he and his descendants would become this great nation. In fact, God says that the whole world would be blessed because of his family line. They would be a huge family. He would give them this special place to live, a whole country set aside for themselves, and God would take care of them. And it's such a wild promise that the moment his wife Sarai heard of it, she literally laughed out loud. But God presses forward, changes Abram's name to Abraham, and Sarai's name to Sarah, and he gets to work. Now, this was a great deal for Abraham. He did nothing to deserve it, and he gets so much, but he didn't actually see the full plan come to fruition during his lifetime. That doesn't mean God didn't keep his promise. Abraham did have eight children, each becoming a father of different people groups, and his second son, Jacob, who he'd really start to see God's plan, God's blessings taken to another level, as he had 12 Children, His children become the 12 patriarchs of the nation of Israel. And it was these 12 families that created the political and geographic system through which the rest of God's plan of salvation would be carried out. Now, God needs to make sure that this family is taken care of, which is where we get the story of Joseph. Joseph is one of the sons of Jacob. God amazingly uses Anger and jealousy of Joseph's brothers, the, the, the reality of being kidnapped and the slave trade. He uses all these horrible things. Years of, of wrongful imprisonment as the plan to save Jacob's family from this terrible drought that would hit the land. Most of us know or have heard the story of Joseph. His story was just full of suffering. Even though he was God's chosen man, even, he, he went through some terrible, tough things. But after a time, God raised Joseph up to a position where he would not only be able to take care of his own people, but he'd be able to save Egypt and the surrounding lands from a great famine that would come. God raised him up for a purpose through suffering. Then in Egypt, God began to prepare his people for the next phase. Jacob, Joseph, and his family were down in Egypt and they were doing fine for a couple hundred years until a different pharaoh came into power. And that one didn't know what Joseph had done. And he didn't remember the promises the previous administration had made. Instead of being thankful, he started to fear this growing family, who were now being called the Israelites, which is the the name that God had given Jacob. But instead of using diplomacy or communication, he just suddenly decides to forced the whole nation of Israel to become the slaves of the Egyptians, and they were in slavery for a very long time, generations of suffering, but still having lots and lots of children. One of these children was named, someone you know, was named Moses. At the exact right time in history, God worked out some powerful miracles and used Moses as the person to lead his people out of Egypt, as one unified nation, ready to go back to the land that God had promised their father Abraham so many years ago, back to the promised land. Now, Pharaoh tried to stand in the way of that deliverance, but after 10 plagues, he finally let them go. The final plague was yet another picture of God's salvation plan, and it pointed to Jesus, the angel of death, would come upon Egypt. And the only way to be saved from the curse was to have the blood of a spotless lamb spread on the entrance to the home and for them to hide behind that blood so that, it would, the, so that death would pass them over. But before they got to the promised land, God brought them to a place where he could make a covenant with them, a promise with them, a, a contractual agreement with them. And he said, as long as they would commit themselves to being his special people, trusting and worshiping him alone, just like Adam and Eve were supposed to, he would take care of them. They would be victorious. They would be well-supplied. Now, God, in his grace, he knew that they would say yes, because who would turn that down? They'd say yes, but because of their inherent sin problem, they would, within days turn back to sin, start worshiping a golden calf of their own design. So he gave them laws. And he said, this is how you should live. This is how I want to be worshiped. This is how to care for one another. This is how to be different than the rest of the world. He said things like, I'm the only God, so worship me alone. Don't murder each other. Don't steal from each other. Honor your parents. Now, all these rules were for their own good. And they were intended to make sure that the relationships between each other and their relationship with him would be peaceful. But then God did something even better than the law. He gave them a religious system by which they could temporarily deal with their sin problem, where they'd be able to approach God, sort of like they did in the Garden of Eden. Except this system would be a bloody system full of death, showing the consequences of sin. Not just, not just one lamb, like in the Passover in Egypt, but many, many, many animals. It would culminate in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Deliverance, the most important annual celebration on the calendar where a high priest would symbolically place all the sin of the nation onto an animal and then kill it in place of the people. The payment for sin is always death. God has the right to destroy anyone who sins immediately. But instead, he allowed the shed blood of a sacrifice, of an animal, to stand in place for a short period of time. It was temporary forgiveness so they could be in a right relationship with him. And the sacrifices went on day after day, year after year, because there was so much sin, and they needed to see the effects. All of this pointed to Jesus, the one who would come to be the once and for all perfect sacrifice, to die in the place of sinners, making a way for them to have permanent forgiveness, restoring us back to the relationship we had with God before the fall, in perfect relationship with God. So now, Israel's free from slavery, they're ready to take back the promised land. They have this great leader in Moses, they have wonderful laws to protect them, they have God's promise to care for them, they have a system by which they can be in a right relationship with God, but, of course, having good laws and good religion doesn't actually fix the problem of sin. Just like the flood didn't fix the problem, having a perfect list of rules doesn't fix your heart. The people were still under the curse. Their souls still bent away from God. So they wouldn't and they couldn't obey the law. It wasn't long before they turned away from the law. They turned away from their religion. They turned away from God. They started worshiping. And putting their trust in created things rather than their creator. They even prayed and made sacrifices to wooden and stone statues of their own making. Even after being delivered from slavery by miracles, given more miracles in the promised land, given a good leader in Moses, the, the perfect law written by God Himself emphasized with thunder and earthquakes and and even more miracles, it it still wasn't enough to keep them from committing more sins, from becoming more evil. Plus, death still existed in the world. There was more saving work that needed to be done. The next chapter in history is sort of an in-between time, which you can call sin, suffer, repent, repeat. And it lasted a thousand years. It was the time of the judges, the time of the kings, the time of the prophets. In The time between the giving of the law and the birth of Jesus, a lot of things happened, but really, it was just the same thing over and over. Sin, suffer, repent, repeat. There were some good things. With God's help, they reclaimed the promised land, almost. They divided it up amongst the 12 tribes. They built some great cities. They became the richest civilization in history. They wrote Psalm and Proverbs. They took down the tabernacle, which was the temporary tent of worship, and they put up this beautiful temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. But there was a lot more bad than good. They broke every law in God's book over and over. They made idols. They cheated. They abused each other. They broke the Sabbath. They even ended up participating in child sacrifice. Throughout this time, God kept raising up prophets to warn them about the consequences of their bad decisions, and they kept killing the prophets. For a long time, God was the king of Israel. But eventually, they decided they didn't want God to be king anymore. They wanted to be like all the other nations, so they wanted a human king. This is like a slap in God's face. He was their ruler. He was their lawgiver. He was their judge. He was their provider to, to, the one to keep them safe. He's the one that led their armies, and now, somehow, God wasn't good enough. And so God's chosen people, the one that he had picked out from all the others, the one that he promised Abraham would be a great nation, once they had become a great nation, turned their backs on him. Just like all the ones who had come before. Just like Eden. Most of the kings were a mess. Selfish and sinful. But God in his mercy kept sending prophets to show the way back. Each of the prophets would remind the nation that God hates sin and it hurts them and it destroys their relationships and it destroys them. And then he would they would show the path of repentance, but most of the prophets would be ignored or even attacked. And then since no one would listen, the prophets kept talking about the promised one who would come finally and end this cycle of sin, suffer, repent, repeat once and for all this this man who would come finally and obey God. Obey God perfectly the one who was promised to Adam and Eve, the one who would come through the tribe, the tribes of Abraham, the the one who would represent mankind, the one who would finally have the power to conquer evil and forgive sin and destroy death. The coming of Jesus is spoken of in every single book of the Old Testament. And that cycle went on for years, hundreds and hundreds of years. All the while, God continuing to prepare the world for Jesus. Raising up nations. Setting the stage. Showing everyone through Israel that there was not one person who could obey Him. Not one who would worship Him rightly. The prophets would fail. The priests would fail. The kings would fail. The heroes would fail. The people would rebel. The law condemned everyone. Humanity was in a miserable state. And they needed someone who would be different. Someone that they called the Messiah, which means the chosen one. Someone who, who would finally break the pattern. Who would obey perfectly. Love God and love others perfectly. Be the perfect prophet And the perfect priest and the perfect king. The one who would only speak truth, who would bring justice to the oppressed, who would lead people into a right relationship with God, one who would be called the Christ, the anointed one. And for years, Israel waited. God was waiting for the time to be just right. Israel was at the pinnacle of their rebellion. The Romans had overtaken them, but they had built roads and laws and a civilization that would allow the story of Jesus to travel throughout the world. God waited for just the right moment to send his greatest gift. But then he surprised everybody by how he did it. Consider the irony of how Jesus entered the world. Since the beginning of time, people were waiting for this person to come. This would be the most important person in history, the Savior of the world. And when he finally came, no one knew. When the Messiah, the Christ Jesus, finally arrived, he didn't come as a mighty king on a white horse leading this huge army. He didn't come with a bolt of lightning on a mountain with his booming voice telling people the judgments of God. He came as a baby, as a helpless infant, the, the son of a virgin adopted by a poor Galilean carpenter, born in a stable, laid in a feeding trough in a tiny village, a nobody from nowhere. He came humbly. He wasn't in a palace like King Solomon. He had no fanfare like King David. He had no blasts of fire like Elijah. The chosen one came in so quietly that his presence was nearly unnoticed by almost everyone who was looking for him. And the Jewish scholars of the day and today were looking. They were looking for the Messiah, but they were expecting a, a political leader, a military conqueror. It's not what they got, at least not yet. But Jesus' identity didn't stay hidden forever. Now, what do you think happened? Uh, what, what did God's chosen people do when they finally found out the Messiah had come? Well, what was humanity's response to the coming of the Savior they'd been waiting thousands of years for? Well, one of the first people to hear when Jesus was only a couple of years old was King Herod, who immediately tried to murder him. And that would typify what Jesus' life would be like. His whole ministry, rejection and suffering, that would be the path of the Son of God. Now, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that 2000 years ago the followers of Jesus laid palm branches and their cloaks at the feet of Jesus riding into Jerusalem who was showing himself to be king of the Jews one of the foretold uh, the the foretold one by the prophets he he was signaling his position as God's anointed one the person to whom they should submit they should listen to they should obey they should follow his plan but as they were celebrating They were doing something very different. They were celebrating something very different than Jesus had in mind. They thought this meant Jesus was coming to conquer the Roman army, overthrow their political oppressors, set up up Jerusalem as the, the pinnacle of earth and all the Israelites as the most powerful kingdom in the world. They were right to celebrate the presence of Jesus. They were wrong about how Jesus would conquer. And when... He didn't do things their way. Their disappointment quickly turned into rage. Now I can't say it any better than the deacon Stephen does to the Jewish ruling council before they killed him. See, Stephen was standing in front of the very people who were supposed to teach Israel about the coming of Jesus. They were the ones who should have been the first to know, the first to acknowledge, the first to bend their knee, the first to follow Jesus, the first to spread the good news. They knew the Bible. They knew that God had sent the Messiah. They looked him in the eye. And Stephen says to them, You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. Humanity did it again. God himself enters into the world in human form. God sends his son, his beloved son, 100% God, 100% man, the only one who could save us from sin and death. He would teach us how to love and how to live and how to worship perfectly And our response, the world's response, was to condemn the Anointed One, condemn the Messiah, condemn the perfect Son of God to the worst, most painful, most agonizing, most excruciating death ever conceived, a Roman cross. God comes to save us, and we murder God. Now one would think, That would be the end of the story. Now, where do you go when there's no hope left? How does an author finish a story when his hero comes to town and the villain destroys him, buried in the ground? An author can't finish that story, you gotta stop when the hero's dead. I think for a moment, God, the great author, his hand lifts from the paper, and the world looks bleak, and there is no hope, and the disciples are scattered, and the Messiah is dead, and the villain has won, and sin will reign forever, and the curse will never be broken. But God is the greatest author of all. His pen only stops for a moment. He turns the page, and he starts the next chapter. The death of Jesus wouldn't be the end of the story. Three days after Jesus dies, God writes something that turns the greatest defeat in history into the climax of his epic tale. He turns a dead, silent tomb into his loudest crescendo. He turns the worst tragedy in history into the ultimate victory. God flips history on its head. In the story God is writing, there are no mistakes. The one who was to be our Savior was supposed to die. His victory came because of his death. Suddenly, all the foreshadowing that the Old Testament was doing makes sense. There was no greater hero than one who would give his life for others. He would be the one who would crush the serpent. He would be the spotless lamb whose blood would save from death. He would be the final sacrifice of the religious system. His death would become the means by which we would all be saved. You see, the, the, the Messiah's mission was to defeat the greatest enemy in the world. Now, almost everyone thought that meant political victory, military victory, some human enemy. But God, the great author, reveals that humanity's enemy wasn't a person, wasn't a nation, wasn't an empire. It wasn't sickness. It wasn't sadness. The greatest enemy this world has ever known is the enemy of sin, which brought death. And it was sin that needed to be conquered, and death needed to be destroyed. If sin was left unconquered, humanity would be doomed, regardless of how healthy or wealthy we ended up being, if we stayed in our sins, we were still doomed. Now, do you know the place where God's forgiveness and love and grace are not present? The place where sin and death and wrath just reign forever. It's a place called hell. Sin puts us on a one-way path to hell with nothing to stop it. That is what needed to be dealt with. Not sickness, not poverty, not gluttony or lust or abuse. There was no, we, God, He didn't need to fix political corruption. He didn't need to fix corporate greed. All of those are the result of sin. And there was only one way to deal with sin the flood didn't work, the list of laws didn't work, the bloody sacrificial system didn't work good kings didn't work. Advancing civilization didn't work because none of it dealt with the root problem. Sin needed to be dealt with, destroyed, paid for. And so God, in His grace, sends his son, and then pours the full measure of his judgment, his wrath against sin, out on Jesus. We will never fully grasp, we will never understand the suffering Jesus went through for those who put their faith in him. The perfect human, the the only one who did not deserve judgment, chose to take the punishment for everyone who would believe and trust in him, for all their sins the full weight of the wrath of God, so that we could be restored back to Him. He offers to exchange our sin for His righteousness. But, just as in Eden, God offers a choice. God doesn't save everyone, whether they want it or not. God does not force anyone to follow him. Love requires a choice, and God wants us to love and obey him. So God offers a choice. Now, God does all the heavy lifting. He shows us that he exists through his creation. He shows us that our sin is a problem through his law and through our own consciences. He shows us that his plan of salvation is real and it's available and he tells us about it in the scriptures. He raises up people to share his plan of salvation with us personally. Jesus does all the work of obeying all the laws and he takes all the wrath and he dies for our sins. Jesus, the ultimate hero, walks out of the grave, conquering the greatest enemy ever. He defeats sin. He beats death. The weight that judgment had of judgment that humanity had borne for thousands of years, placed on his shoulders. He carried it. He paid it. He bled for it. He rose from the dead, and he showed his victory over it. And then he extends his nail-scarred hand, and he offers freedom to anyone who would believe. He makes us an offer. The question is, will you accept Jesus as your only Savior? As Romans ten nine and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Will you believe? Will you confess? It's the only way of salvation. Today, we're living in the denouement, the, the end the great epic. The story's already unfolded. The villain's been conquered. The hero's been lifted high. His people are victorious. Now, yes, we still see the effects of sin. The story isn't over yet. The pandemic that we're going through is a reminder that the consequences of sin are terrible, and they lead to corruption, and they lead to death. It's a reminder that as Romans 8 says, All of creation is groaning along with us, waiting to be finally freed from its bondage to corruption, eagerly awaiting our final destination and the redemption of our bodies. We we, we see that. We live it every day right now. But Christians know that times like this also remind us of the hope we have in Jesus alone. That as wonderful as Politicians and doctors and scientists are. They can't deal with the real problem. The weight of sin in our souls. We talked about that last week. This epic is the greatest message that can ever be known. And I want you to internalize it. Because this story tells you, you were personally designed by a loving creator And he gives you hope and he gives you purpose and he gives you a secure future no matter what happens next in this world. And it reminds you that your life is so much more than food or money or sex or friends or career. And it tells you that your instinct towards justice, your deep desire for hope and for peace and for joy and for freedom can actually be fulfilled but they must be fulfilled only in Jesus. It tells you that Your decisions have eternal consequences. What you say, what you do matters. And it reminds you that you don't need to fear death because death has lost its sting. And even your most terrible suffering can be turned into the greatest of victories because that's the God we serve. He says, you're worthy of, and you can experience divine love, the cleansing of your soul, be made into a new person. That's offered to you. That God will never leave you, never forsake you. Because of the hero, because of Jesus, you can live in the presence of God now, today, and forever. And he offers you that. But you must believe. You must bow the knee and say you need Jesus alone to save you. It's a great story because it's a true story. People have loved it so much, they believed in the hero so deeply that they have died to tell others. So I urge you, if you have not already, to accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, to read the story over and over and over in the Bible, to tell his story over and over this whole epic to as many people as you can. Because they need to hear it. You need to believe it. You need to know it.
0: Thanks for listening to today's Art of the Christian Ninja Sermon Podcast. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, head over to artofthechristianninja.com and check the Contact Me button to send an email to Pastor Al. While you're there, hit the Subscribe by Email button use the search bar to discover lots of other topics and even download all of Pastor Al's books for free. May the Lord be with you.